Welcome to Music and the Church, a podcast that brings you insight into today's diverse worship landscape by connecting the dots between beliefs and practices so that you can have a happier, healthier ministry. Today, we'll be discussing alterations to hymn lyrics and hearing from Ryan Harper about his new book, The Gaithers and Southern Gospel. I am Sarah Bariza, a researcher and church musician living in Cincinnati, Ohio. And I'm Crawford Wiley, an organist just outside of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. First up today, we're talking about altering hymn lyrics when you have the option of putting them in an order of worship. If you find yourself in the position of placing either just the lyrics themselves or lyrics and music in an order of worship, one of the decisions that you'll have to make is which particular edition of the text to use, because hymn lyrics have changed a lot. Even hymns written in the beginning of the 20th century are frequently altered. And let's talk a little bit about the nature of those alterations. There's actually a range of categories that alterations can take, and anachronisms are one of the main categories, which is updating language to things like you and me rather than like thee and thou. Right. That's the first category, and that one is probably the most difficult to change because people are used to singing a hymn text in a certain way, and the poetry is often substantially altered so that, you know, the lines will still have the same meter and rhyme. Right, and we should mention right at the beginning, that what people are used to singing can be a difficulty to changing hymn lyrics anyway. Even if if you look between just the different Lutheran hymnals, you'll find sometimes really radically different lyrics to the same hymn because, and this is another issue, many hymns are translations of hymns written in another language. Mm -hmm. And there are multiple translations often. Yeah, then you're not only dealing with what particular alterations would we want to make to the hymn lyrics as they are in English, but, you know, whether or not we want to make a fresh translation of a hymn that was written in, say, German. Yeah, and in, in terms of familiarity, one thing to keep in mind is your own denominational place and your congregation's place, because I feel like in a church that has had the same denominational hymnal for 20 years and then gets a new hymnal, that can be a big switch. Whereas I think, Crawford, for you in a Roman Catholic parish, Catholics have a variety of hymnals that are in use. Yes. Which involves a variety of translations, a variety of marriages between text and tune. That's not always the same across these hymnals, and there's a lot of options. Whereas if you are in the PCUSA church, you probably either have the old hymnal or the one that was published in 2014. Not a lot of options. Right, which not only narrows your options, but it also eliminates maybe some of the need to explore these different options. Yeah, whereas for you, Crawford, without that expectation that basically everyone in your congregation knows the same hymn text in exactly the same way, you actually have a lot of flexibility. Right, there's more, there's more freedom to alter those. So besides updating anachronistic language, which, as Sarah mentioned, can sometimes be difficult because the entire stance of a verse might be altered. I'm thinking, for instance, there's at the end of Charles Wesley's Love Divine, All Loves Excelling. In the last verse, in one of the Roman Catholic hymnals, the line has been altered to avoid the use of the word the, referring to God. And so, because the word the occurs in a rhyming spot, the the rest of the line has to be completely changed, so that instead of till we cast our crowns before thee, the line is altered to till we sing before the Almighty, 
which works from a poetic point of view, but it's a different it's a different meaning altogether. So that's something to consider is whether or not you want to alter the meaning of the text while at the same time you're updating the language to something less anachronistic. So that's that's one side of text changes. One of the easiest categories to change is exclusionary or sexist language, and that's often when something refers to man or mankind or sons of God, when you could say church or friends or we. Right, and in this case, frequently, the sense of the line doesn't need to be altered at all. Because the sense is everybody, all people. Right, right. So I'm thinking at the beginning of the Christmas hymn, Good Christian Men Rejoice, Mm -hmm. the hymn isn't really intending to address just men. It's referring to everybody. So it's easy to say, Good Christian Friends Rejoice. So you've you've altered the text, but you've altered it in a way that makes the meaning more accurate, really. You you are including now everyone who you meant to be including. Yeah, similarly, rise up, O men of God is often altered to rise up, O church of God. Right, which preserves the meaning and eliminates an exclusivity that could be troubling. I think it, this type of change is also much easier for a congregation to adapt to if they're familiar with an older version, simply because it's dropping in one word, and it's not that hard to sing good Christian friends rejoice versus good Christian men rejoice. That's that's a very small thing to change. Right, right. In fact, if you're singing a hymn from memory, you might not even notice that the words have been changed. Whereas in the case of changing words to make them less archaic, you might end up with an entire line that's different, mm-hmm. and that can that can really throw mm-hmm, people. Mm-hmm. So this is this is less drastic, but I think in certain ways it can be even more helpful. I think so. So if we're talking about changes made for an order of worship, so you you aren't restricted to what is in the printed and bound hymnal, but right. you're going to print print something, you're going to print a text in the order of worship. You actually have a lot of room for changes, and I'm I'm thinking of one UCC church where I was um working as a sub for quite a few weeks. And um, they even wrote different stances for one hymn uh, about where, where you'll meet all the saints of God. And they included like restaurants in the city. And it was, it was a really sweet addition that was very, <laughs> very of the, the spirit of the church. But also it was, it, was their, it was their stanza that they added. Right. And it reflected that congregation's particular concerns. Yeah. yeah. And I think this is something that we wanted to get at. Hymns are sung to not only reflect who we are, but they also help us to learn who we are. And I think not just of children who are singing hymns and learning who they are in a congregation, but even older people like us, you know, when we sing hymns, it it tells us something about who we are or who we want to be. And so altering language can allow a hymn to express more fully that sense of particular identity. Another category of changes to hymn texts is removing or altering ableist language. So, for instance, I once was blind, but now I see, which takes a physical condition and makes it a metaphor for a spiritual condition, right? Yes. And what happens in this category is oftentimes the change, if if you make a change to the text, you are actually reading against the intent of the hymn writer. So with I once was blind, but now I see, that is in fact Newton's intent to make that a metaphor for a spiritual condition. Which of course raises a whole nother set of issues, which is, is it okay for you, random music director, to say, uh, I'm just going to do something that Newton didn't say, or not, 
or make the choice that, well, I'm not going to sing that because I don't think that that is what we as a congregation want to be saying right. and just not sing that stanza. Right. This raises perhaps a larger question that kind of sits over all of these categories, which is a question about the integrity of the texts themselves. So, for instance, do you want to acknowledge that the texts as a product of a particular person in a particular place from a particular ecclesial background have their own integrity? Or are the texts serving your congregation? Are the texts to be used to the best that you can use them? So what I'm thinking of is if what you want is texts that communicate truths that your congregation believes, and that's what's primary in your mind, then you'll probably want to engage with more alteration to the texts so that they reflect more specifically what your congregation believes and ways that your congregation is comfortable expressing themselves. So, for instance, you would really want to consider removing that particular ableist language in any other instances of that. Whereas, if you're interested in preserving your congregation's sense of its past, I'm thinking specifically of Lutheran chorales, where the chorales themselves have been part of that church's individual tradition for centuries, to alter the texts can simultaneously make them more accurately reflect what your congregation currently believes, but the flip side of that is that it can provide a sort of amnesia where your congregation forgets who they have been in the past and don't remember that the texts have come to them from a long and sometimes really complex history. So those are some different things to think of. I, I think Sarah and I would be honest, I have a much more conservative mindset on the alteration of text. Sometimes it really bothers me. And Sarah, I don't think that that's a problem as much for you. Oh, not at, not at all. And in, in fact, I was really surprised when you suggested that we talk about this topic because I was thinking, what? Crawford's okay with altering hymn texts? I didn't know that. I thought... <laughs> yeah, how slowly we come yeah. in our journey. Yeah, but I wonder if this is also related to the fact that we as Christians often sing hymns that are written from a very a different part in Christendom than our particular congregation. Yes, this is true. So like you're in a Catholic church singing Amazing Grace by someone who was definitely not Catholic. Yeah, yeah. And it often happens, like for, for me, I will read a text and I think, ah, oh, that's really much more Calvinist than the particular congregation that I'm in. And that isn't actually what they believe about atonement. That isn't actually what they believe about Christ's work on the cross. And I'm personally err on the side of not selecting a hymn text that doesn't agree with a congregation's actual doctrinal belief. And that's in part because I've worked in such a variety of denominations that I'm very cognizant of these subtle but important distinctions in didactic belief. And I don't feel that it's my role as the selector of hymns to shape their doctrine in that kind of way. Right. Especially because I'm literally never of the same den denominational background as the church in which I work. Right, yes. You know, I've, I've never worked as the music director of an Orthodox church, right? So I'm always coming at it from at least a slightly different viewpoint. And so for me, I'm like, well, I'm not the pastor. I am a pastoral leader, but I'm not the... I am not the arbiter of doctrine in this church. I'm not yes. the elder. I'm not the session. I'm not the bishop. So it's not for me to say, oh, let's just sing this Calvinist hymn 
in this congregation that's definitely not Calvinist. Right. You don't want to subtly undermine the church's mm-hmm. own theology. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But I think that's an interesting an interesting observation because I think many times churches themselves or congregations or musicians in the churches maybe are more concerned with either a tune that they mm. really like and that everyone is familiar with or a text that everyone just kind of has stored in their memory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that they don't examine critically. Oh, yeah. I think, for instance, of Christmas hymns that are sung and which frequently involve religious language that you might think would be troubling to people from a more low-church background, but which, because they're so familiar and so much a part of the general Christmas feeling, people don't really think about the texts, necessarily. I think that this opens up a whole other area, which we'll have to address in another episode, which is that oftentimes we say music is pedagogical, we treat hymns as a learning tool, often, and a way of worshiping God— But at the end of the day, a lot of times people don't actually pay attention to lyrics. Yeah. I'm amazed sometimes at the pop songs that very conservatively religious people will listen to. And it makes me giggle a little bit because I'm like, that is a very graphic song that does not align with your uh, stated conservatism. Right, right, right. You are clearly not listening to the lyrics. And I think that people do that with hymns. Yeah. We may not listen critically, I think, to the lyrics. Yeah, well, and it may also be the case that, you know, most people are not like me. They're not in one denomination, working in another denomination, and have worked in... I've worked in all the major mainline denominations and quite a few evangelical ones. Like, I've worked in a lot of denominations. And having done that, I'm really tuned into these little nuances that maybe someone wouldn't be if they've been Methodist their whole life. Yes, yes. Which, you know, is, is not a bad thing. Like, that's actually a wonderful thing to be to be home in that kind of way. But it, it, it makes you think differently. Yeah, it does. One resource that I wanted to mention is a book called When God Speaks Through Worship, Stories Congregations Live By, by Craig Satterley, who's a bishop in the Evangelical Lutheran Church. And I'll link to that in the show notes, musicinthechurch.com slash 13. Craig Satterley is legally blind. In this book, he mentions singing Amazing Grace and how off-putting and a disruption of his worship that experience was. And and this is, I'm uh, very much paraphrasing his story. I don't have the book right in front of me. Um, It unfortunately had to go back to the library. But I would encourage anyone who is certainly on the more conservative side of, oh, we shouldn't change any words, just to to read that and be open to understanding someone someone else's experience and how maybe something that isn't off-putting to you could be really disruptive to someone else. Yes. Actually, I'm going to get the book and read it myself. What do you think about altering hymn texts? Let us know at musicandthechurch at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 513-580-4282. Next up, we have our interview with Ryan Harper. Ryan is a visiting assistant professor at New York University, and his new book is The Gaithers and Southern Gospel, Homecoming in the 21st Century. Bill and Gloria Gaither are known for their many hymns like Because He Lives, He Touched Me, and The Family of God, and between them they've won six Grammys. Ryan's book focuses on their homecomings. In 1991, it seemed like Bill's work as a singer was winding down and they recorded a homecoming video as a kind of goodbye, but that homecoming recording ended up launching a whole second career for them. How did you get interested in the homecomings and do you have a musical background? Yes, I do. Uh, It started uh, 
I guess if you have to, if, if we go as far back as we can, it started when I was about six years old, and I came from a singing family. Uh, my family had a Southern gospel singing group. Family bands are pretty popular in that genre of music. And even as a even as a young man, six years old, I was singing in that group and also playing drums in it too, as much as I could. I was a short guy and mostly had to work with my hands and didn't have much to do with the bass drummer I had. I couldn't quite reach the pedals. But that's not a very uh, bass drum hi-hat heavy uh, music <laughs> anyway. So uh, I knew about this music early on. The Gaithers aren't, weren't necessarily solidly Southern gospel in the 80s, but certainly a lot of the music they wrote was making its way into Southern gospel uh, circles by then. So I knew about this stuff. I went to Duke University Divinity School, uh, did my master's theological studies, and knew I was interested in American religious history. Of course, many things, this was, you know, this would have been the early 21st century. There was lots of great stuff coming out then on Christian rock music. Uh, there was lots of good scholarly stuff happening around African-American traditions. But I was certainly aware, and not only from my upbringing, but because I knew my parents were still listening to the homecomings, that there was this huge, uh, there was a style of music that was really outselling everything on the Christian music market. It wasn't quite as sexy as Christian rock, and it wasn't as a sort of maybe rooted traditionally what people think of gospel music like African-American music, but the homecomings were just selling like crazy. And I thought, why has no one really talked about this? So I decided I wanted to be the person who filled that lacuna in the scholarship. I thought I had the historical background to do it. So that's what I started. I started working at Duke, uh, Duke Divinity on this, and it followed me all the way to Princeton University. That's fantastic. And you also have the ear to hear the differences in style and to be able to talk about different the different uh, musicians that they work with and the varieties in the style of music that they have. I do. And luckily, you know, they've got a lot of good Nashville studio musicians playing with them. So it helped to not only have a background in Southern gospel music from just growing up in the church and hymnody, uh, but also I'm a jazz drummer now and I play a variety of stringed instruments. They are a group that tries to combine with, uh, in a sort of reasonably circumscribed way, lots of different styles and genres. Uh, so yeah, I think having that equipment uh, hopefully helps me write a better book. You talk about the Gaithers as transitional, synthesizing, reconciling figures, and that seems to really play into their use of musical style and how it works with their theological beliefs, which are also embracing and welcoming rather than exclusionary. Yeah, there's a lot to say about that. I, there's about Bill and Gloria Gaither specifically, but then about what the homecomings are trying to pull off stylistically and from a, even a sort of a format organizational standpoint. Uh, maybe start by just talking about the Gaithers a moment. You know, the heyday of the songwriting, late 60s, or really early 70s, they started writing some of the songs that became canonical, especially in uh, evangelical circles, white circles, but also African-American circles too. So songs like The Family of God, Because He Lives, Let's Just Praise the Lord, uh, were some of those really big songs. Um, that was a time when we're seeing the rise of Christian rock. It's happening a lot on the West Coast which was, of course, a pretty divisive uh, genre in white Christian music circles. High church musicians certainly didn't like it, uh, but musicians and fans of that quartet and family band music that had really been the music out of the American South and Midwest evangelical circles, they didn't like it much either. The Gaithers were, uh, kind of arrived at that moment and uh, were writing songs that contain quite a bit of interpretive possibility. A song like Because He Lives uh, could really be a lot of different things. You might, to use Pauline language, that was a song that could be all things to all fans. <laughs> yeah, so it was, they were really writing music that lent itself to a different a variety of milieus. Um, and that really only increased over time as they get later into the 80s and 90s. They're collaborating, say, with Richard Smallwood, the African-American gospel uh, songwriter with the song like Jesus, You're the Center of My Joy. Uh, it's, it's not really surprised that their songs get picked up by a lot of different people. So really from the outset, they were reconciling figures and synthesizing figures stylistically. Their songs are now in hymnals, but you'll also see all kinds of different contemporary Christian acts covering Gaither songs, too. 
Now, the homecoming specifically, uh, I think one of the interesting things that happens is you look at the visuals um, before you even get into the styles of those shows. It's a semi-circle format. So if you turn on those early videos, uh, you're going to see a semi-circle of people. I think of the old shape note tradition or maybe even Quaker meetings uh, where people are really gathered in a circle. Uh, and if you're viewing these things from your television at home, uh, in a way, you're invited to complete that circle. You're, they're looking at a semicircle, and if you continue to draw an imaginary line outside of the television, you yourself, as a viewer, are inside that circle. So uh, in terms of trying to create a community, a communal sense of music making, I think that uh, that choice, uh, that sort of directorial choice in part of the Gaithers, uh, it, it made people feel very welcome and invited into this space. It, was, it felt like a kind of domestic uh, space, participatory space very early on. I don't want to overstate uh, too much that they were, you know, the circle was way, way wide. I mean, it was still especially early on about this kind of of, by, and for uh, white evangelicals in the South and the Midwest. But that changes over time. And I think it was intentional on the part of the Gaithers to try to create uh, an environment that could be porous and a circle that really not only would be unbroken, but also would be expanded. How did they do that in terms of musical style to continue expanding that circle? It started early with, you know, the first couple homecoming videos are really tributes to the old mid-century quartets, the all-male quartets, and some of the family bands. But what they would do over time is, even though that was the centerpiece of a lot of those early homecoming shows, you would see these guests sort of invited in to do maybe a feature of a different type of music. Uh, for example, the Fairfield Four show up at one thing. They're the Fairfield Four is the group that was famous. I remember them from the Oh Brother Where Art Thou, the African American group that sings Oh Death, and I think they're even featured in the film. I, I think it's the soundtrack. African American male singing group shows up. They do a couple songs. Everyone loves it. I think you're able even to hear sonically how that music is very consonant with white Southern evangelical music too. So it was a maneuver that here's a music that's like the stuff that we're featuring and centralizing, but it's obviously coming from a different uh, culture inside American Christendom. They would make those kind of subtle gestures outside and outside and outside. And eventually, as they gained the trust, I think, of their audience, they were able to do that uh, in more sustained fashions. And later homecomings are really, in some ways, not Southern gospel centric. Uh, they become increasingly diverse uh, over time. Some of what you wrote about in terms of their style is that their musical style is motivated or partially motivated by a theological belief. And I think a lot of times when people think about evangelical Christianity, it's really exclusionary, and there's a hard and fast line of the in-group and the out-group, but that isn't necessarily the case in how they're presenting their music in the world. That's right, uh, and I think this is, a, this is probably a, a number of reasons for this. I think, for one thing, just being part of the national music scene so long, when you're working with people who, even if they're recording your music, they come from some, you know, they have some worldview that's not your own. It's just, there's a sort of built-in cosmopolitanism, uh, even to a fairly, you know, southern place like Nashville. So, so exposure is to other people is kind of built into the, it's, it's just the nature of, of their careers. Now, the Gaithers specifically, though, uh, they come from a Wesleyan holiness strand, self-consciously come from a Wesleyan holiness strand of Christianity that's always been high on experience. Um, in some ways, over centralization of propositional content of belief. So the question of what you believe, it's not unimportant to the Gaithers, but it's it's really about how is the spirit affecting you and how is it a, sort of a wash in your life outside of your brain and your ability to sort of assent to doctrine or not. Gloria is especially, I think, um, a person who thinks that the experiential nature of Wesleyan holiness Christianity is uh, has some of the, there's a toolkit that comes with that kind of Christianity 
that really equips them to be able to speak across boundaries and across lines. And uh, she's very proud of that. I don't want to overstate again. I think like the first move for them is to reach out to Calvinist Christians, and they're very proud they have a large Roman Catholic audience. They're certainly proud that they have people who come to their shows who probably aren't particularly Christian, don't self-identify as Christian in any way. It's going to be solidly Christian, but they, they like those stories. They love receiving letters from people who come from kind of outside of the fold, right? Because I think they feel like it's their mission to, again, um, kind of shatter those outer boundaries that have been rightly or wrongly associated with their version of evangelicalism for a long time. Is this somehow related to music as a medium that is particularly experiential in that you're giving people like a theological experience or giving them the opportunity to have this religious experience? Yeah, I think it helps to be working in a genre, a kind of art that no one expects too much propositionally from. And it's unfortunate, too, because I think, you know, lyrics can obviously contain great theological truths and, and can even contain arguments sometimes. But really, there, in, in terms of music, and I know this is how Gloria and Bill think about it, you're leading with an experience. And it's, yeah, it's an, an invitation into people to have an experience that doesn't require, there's not this kind of gatekeeper at the door about, well, you can check in if you believe A, B, or C. Uh, you're just invited into the experience, and they're pretty willing to say, you know, open yourself to the contingency of what may happen here, uh, and, and we'll go from there. <laughs> Let's talk about Gloria Gaither for a bit, because you know we're talking about music, and Gloria is the lyricist for many of these songs. Can you talk about her quiet power and her approach to songwriting? Sure, I can tell you a little bit about the first time I met her too, which maybe a good way to into this. When I was doing my work at Duke, I had done some papers on them, and I got the feeling over the course of research, well, these seem to be the sorts of people who would be okay reading academic writing on themselves. Uh, I just had this hunch. So I wrote a letter to Bill telling him I was doing this. I think I was already headed to Princeton at that point, told him I was interested in writing this longer form piece. Long story short, he writes me a handwritten letter back and invites me to Alexandria, their homes. And we'd love to meet you, talk about this, see what's up. So uh, my spouse, Lynn, and I go to Alexandria, Indiana. We drive up to the Gaither door, and Bill's immediately is very extroverted, glad-hander. Gloria's kind of quiet. I remember she was a summer day. She was wearing sunglasses, and she's just very reserved. And this experience of her early on, I realized she's she's the introvert of the group, and she uh, values silence and reticence. And she's certainly not going to do a lot of hand-holding for you in terms of social uh, exchanges. <laughs> she was pretty intimidating to me, actually, early on. Um, <laughs> over time, though, I realized you know, you, she's a person who likes to uh, earn your trust, and she's uh, you have to kind of earn her trust, too. She's a person who values the economy of language a great deal. And uh, I think that shows up in some of her best songwriting. She's someone who thinks that you don't need to try to say everything in a song. Uh, but the things you try to say, you need to do it in a kind of a concise space, especially when you're thinking about this genre of music where you just have maybe a couple minutes at a time to say something. So economy is really key for her. She's a voracious reader, too. She's constantly immersing herself in texts. So the quiet part of her power, I think, has to do with just kind of her temperament and her approach to language and her approach to social situations. It also probably has something to do with the fact that she's negotiating a space still heavily gendered. A lot of the fans, you'll go to a Gaither show and you'll see women who cover their heads. You know, so I think of like Old Order Womenite, uh, Mennonite and some of the Pentecostal groups. So there's this notion of a gender hierarchy that are much at play there. That's certainly not everybody at those shows, too. Um, so she's probably aware of this fact that there's kind of like a, a gender dynamic to the fan base. But it plays really well with her sensibility. She's very happy to kind of lay back. Bill is more of a spotlight guy. Gloria is less of a spotlight person. 
But the irony of it all, right, is that she's the lyricist. And uh, I often say, um, you know, aside from Fanny Crosby, there's probably no woman in evangelical America who is, whose words have been on more evangelicals' lips uh, than Gloria Gaither. The, the joke, I guess, is that she may be kind of the silent presence, but in a way, her words are all over American evangelical spaces. Yeah. I feel like um, most evangelicals would probably subscribe to the belief that music is a really powerful educational or pedagogical tool. And that makes lyricists the biggest teachers in our churches in that we, we carry their sermons and song with us in a way that we don't usually with actual sermons. Certainly so. And it's amazing how it gets in you, too. My spouse works a lot with older populations, particularly populations with dementia and Alzheimer's. And it's funny when everything else drops away, especially for Protestants, mm-hmm. those old hymns are still yeah. there, yeah. right? Every yeah. verse. Or maybe they grew up at this first, second, and fourth verse. But <laughs> yeah. um, those songs get inside people, right? And they have a way of maybe maybe a good way to think of it. They kind of educate the whole body such that when cognition is compromised, uh, some, something about those words remains. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit more about what the homecomings are? Like we've been talking about the homecomings, but what is that? What actually is that? Homecomings, especially in rural southern and midwestern churches, usually refer to a week-long or a weekend-long, often annual event where people who had had been gone from the church or who had moved away from the town get invited back, and there's usually a big revivalistic type of service. There's a speaker, usually a guest speaker, who comes in. There's at least one big music act. Usually there's lots of music acts that come, too. Uh, it's usually very food-centric. Uh, there's lots of uh, there's dinner on the grounds either outside or in the fellowship hall. So it's this big kind of festival. And truly, it is a homecoming. It's predicated on the, you know, I guess these things started arising when you see the urbanization of America really taking hold in the early and especially the middle 20th century. People are leaving some of these rural communities and these rural churches. Homecomings were a way to kind of come back to those spaces and participate in a community uh, that you, you had left. The homecomings in, in terms of the Gaither world, they started in 1990, 1991. Uh, Bill had been recording with the Gaither vocal band, his, I think at the time it was a quintet uh, of male singers. Their contract was about up. Bill was 55 years old at the time. He felt like his career was kind of winding down. And he wanted to do a tribute to some of that old-timey gospel he grew up with, some of the quartet music, that close harmony stuff, some of the family bands. So he wanted to gather in a studio uh, with his Gaither vocal band some of these legends of, uh, of mid-century gospel music. It was a little like, um, if you know the recording of the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band, Will the Circle Be Unbroken, where they did this recording of an old-timey song, and they brought all these old-timey musicians like Roy Acuff, these country stars from a Days of Yore in. So it was really going to be a one-and-off thing. Let's keep some cameras rolling in the studio because this is going to be a reunion among friends, and let's just see what we get. Well, it turns out they recorded a lot of footage. They recorded this one song. The song was, uh, Where Could I Go But To The Lord? But as the cameras rolled, they realized people just didn't stop singing. All these musicians got together, and they kept calling out him. Hey, you know that one? And they'd sing some more and sing some more and sing some more. And Bill very wisely kept the cameras rolling through all of this. He ended up putting together kind of an hour-long, very roughly edited version of not just the video, the music video, that's really just the musicians singing in the studio, but also the recording of all these kind of spontaneous singings. <laughs> it's just kind of like a little revivalistic eruption in the studio space. 
Uh, he marketed it to the family channel. They ran it. Phones rang off the hook. People wanted this thing. They wanted a copy of it. They wanted it to be rerun. And that was really the beginning of the homecoming phenomenon. Bill kind of kept making more of these, and they got more organized. He started seating people in this, like I described, the semicircle space. Kept going, kept going, kept going. And it really, that's what started the franchise. It started as a kind of, uh, I'm about to retire project for Bill. This is going to be my last sort of, this is going to be the swan song. And it turned into something that was really the beginning of the most lucrative thing he was ever a part of. <laughs> so what format do the homecomings take? Like for people who haven't seen a homecoming, I haven't seen a full length homecoming, but I did spend a lot of time watching videos of them on YouTube. In their heyday, a typical homecoming would be several hours for one thing, <laughs> live and in the studio. They sang, they just sang and sang and sang. Uh, it was a mixture of joint communal singing uh, where the, the entire ensemble on TV is singing some of these old-timey gospel hymns mixed with these little mini features, uh, kind of musical showcases of either soloists or groups who were gathered in that ensemble. So, for instance, if you've got the ensemble singing maybe a song like Where Could I Go But To The Lord, then they sing one or two other songs, and then suddenly um, all the Blackwood Brothers, this little quartet, comes up to the center of the circle, and they sing two or three songs together. And then they retreat back into the ensemble. The ensemble sings some more. So it's this—it's an interesting thing. Uh, it's, it's combination performance showcase for some of these discrete groups, but it's also kind of a sing-along too. I think that the ensemble sings are not just performances, but those are the times when people, the audience members, the viewers are really invited into the space to think, oh, we're doing something like a congregational singing. This is definitely a kind of music that comes out of the old convention singing tradition of the singing schools in the American South where you just get together and you sing together. So it's that mixture of participatory church music, but also uh, it's a concert too. Let's talk about a bit about performance and authenticity, because it's a big issue for church musicians who listen to this podcast. And the musicians in the homecomings are by and large professional musicians and they're performing as a career. But at the same time, it's not like, oh, I want to have a performance. I need to have this entertainment kind of thing. Like it seems that the intent is I am a Christian and I am, this is an expression of my faith, right? Can you tell us a bit about how the homecoming musicians negotiate these issues around authenticity? Sure, sure. I think they have some advantages that people in churches don't have and they have some disadvantages. I'll start maybe with the disadvantage. It's a funny genre, Southern gospel music, and even really, I'd say Christian music, especially in evangelical circles more broadly. In my literary circles, I often say, no one in evangelical music is a new critic. In other words, they don't come to their text or their music, their songs, and say, I don't care, I don't, want, I don't need to know anything about authorial intent, I don't need to know anything about biography, I just want to experience this music. People are very interested in the biography of these people. They're very interested in knowing that these are pious people, however conceived. Uh, so the audience has serious expectations about the lives lit, led by the people singing. And they also, in some ways, feel invited in uh, to the domestic spheres. In some ways, the Gaithers and others are responsible for that. If you go to a homecoming show, there's features of family photos. There's talk about, you know, what did we do for Christmas? So there's a domesticity to all that really invites fans in. That's part of the selling point. Uh, it's like, you know, I heard so much when I was talking to fans for this project. I feel like I know them. I feel like I know them. I feel like I know them. The, the disadvantage there, though, is that people feel entitled to know them and feel like, you know, they should be privy to all these details. And if something goes wrong, some part of someone's biography doesn't quite align with the fan base's uh, definitions of piety, well, then you've got some marketing problems, 
And the audience is a really broad audience. So like the definition of piety to a Pentecostal woman is different to, you know, a, a Roman Catholic man. Like that's really different in, in what it looks like and what it sounds like. Absolutely. So when you're trying to have, yeah, like a big tent version of Christianity or maybe even something larger at the homecomings, you're constantly dealing with that, right? That the, there's all these expectations in the seats. Uh, and one person's expectation might not just be different, but it actually might be kind of opposing someone else's expectation. There's no easy answer for that. And a lot of it depends on, on the person on stage. Uh, you know, my last chapter in my book is about Linda Randall, who's an African-American woman who I think has particular gender and racial things to constantly negotiate in her performances, what's expected of her. People who aren't married who are on the stages have different expectations than people who are in heterosexual marriages. Uh, so, so it's a delicate dance in all cases. The payoff is huge. If you can sell yourself as a great person, I mean, that's, it's, it's great, but, uh, you're constantly on display and, uh, and that creates problems. I will say this though. Um, this is an advantage, I think, that homecomings have and, and Bill and Gloria have that uh, church musicians know. The Gaithers, the homecomings are not a 501c3 organization. They're not tax exempt. And in some ways, they are so forthright about the kind of economic nature of this project. They don't do shows and then they ask for love offerings. There is a very specific ticket price. You pay for your admission. You get a show that is hopefully a ministry too. But at the end of the day, this is a business, right? And the fact that Bill leads with that, I think, opens up some space that for local musicians, often that's a muddy thing, right? So if I'm in a local church, we probably have some professional musicians on the payroll but there's probably a whole assortment of lay musicians there too. And you've got those people operating in the same space. Uh, anytime economics enter into the equation, questions of authenticity arise, right? Like this person's doing it just because they're paid. This person's doing it just because they love it. Can a person do it, be paid, but also love it? What are their criteria? How do we decide when a person's authentic or not? In some ways, by, by virtue of leading with the economy and saying, look, we're just a business. Um, and we hope that you get something out of our shows. Bill bypasses some of the questions that sometimes arise uh, when you're talking about other televised ministries. In the sense that, of, of course, we're also giving you a good time. Yeah. Because then you wouldn't buy our ticket in the way that you wouldn't buy a ticket to a church service. Right. And certainly they, they want, uh, you know, Gloria was clear to me when I, she saw the edits in this book. She thought I said this a little too hard, this ministry versus business thing. She's like, we think of it as a ministry. However, it just clarifies the terms of the contract. If you don't try to go in and say, we're, we're acting like a church in terms of our tax exempt status and stuff like that. And also, it's the, the other funny thing, the way Bill does this, he often kind of self-deprecates on homecoming stages, making fun of his own uh, capacity to kind of peddle every single video he makes. Uh, Mark Lowry is the sort of comedian in the show. And he'll like, oh, Bill, watch out. Bill will record you and try to sell it in line. There's this sort of playful talk about Bill as businessman that has a way of putting everybody at ease. Uh, even though at the same time, he's completely broadcasting the fact that it's a business. You know? So it's an interesting move they make. But yeah, I think that, uh, you know, they're clear. We're giving you a show. We're giving you a performance. We certainly hope it's a ministry, but it's not a ministry in a kind of legal sense. And I think that changes maybe some of the expectations around it. Anything else that you'd like to add for listeners about your book and the homecomings? Well, no, I thanks. First of all, thanks again to you, Sarah, for reading it. Uh, it, it was a labor uh, of love for me. It was a, it was a sort of homecoming for me because this is not a music that I uh, have listened to in a long time. So it's, it was kind of going back a little bit into my history to do it. Ethnography to me is just a great thing. It's a great thing to listen to people who, uh, 
are not only making music and making art, but also people who just uh, who love the music too. So I guess one thing I would say is that like I'd put a plug in for any uh, academics listening. It's important to do ethnography and it's important to be out there and it's fun to be out there with people who care about stuff like this. Thank you for being on the show. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of Music and the Church. Get in touch by emailing us at musicandthechurch at gmail.com or leave a voicemail at 513-580-4282. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share it with your friends. You can also subscribe to our monthly newsletter at musicandthechurch.com slash sign up. We'll be back next week.